Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Fight hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Welcome to the Waco History Podcast. I'm Randy Lane, great-grandson of Waco architect Roy E. Lane. Over 100 years ago, he designed the Alico Building, Hippodrome, and other well-known landmarks. My co-host, Dr. Stephen Sloan of Baylor's Institute for Oral History, is helping me learn Waco's known and unknown stories. On this episode, Waco's 9-11 response. People are calling in on all sorts of suspicious vehicles, baggage in the parking lots at airports, suspicious people. Historian Ty Williams explains why President Bush's nearby ranch in Crawford had Waco on high alert. Talking to those guys, they were mentally ready to do what was necessary. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. I'm safe when I reach Well, welcome back to the studio. We have a very special guest today. Stephen, do you want to introduce him? I'll be happy to, Randy. Ty Williams, who's a local product who has uh, just completed his master's degree in history down at Texas State University. We haven't done anything on the 21st century yet, mm-hmm. and it's amazing how time marches on. This is a history that everyone will have some connection to. It's interesting to think about how every national story really has a local element here. And we're going to be talking about September 11th attacks. And we all know the national story there, but it also intersects with lives locally here. And so Ty's done some research on this and he has a family connection. I won't spoil that for him. He he can tell you that. But he's here to talk about kind of some research he did into that story. And I'll let him tell you more about it. Okay, Ty, can we start with just kind of introducing yourself to people? Who are you? What's your background? Yes, my name is Ty Williams. I uh, originally from Waco, Riker graduate, and I uh, went to college uh, much later on and in uh, grad school down at Texas State. I studied early American history, primarily the American Revolution, and during graduate school we had to take a public history courses, and I did a oral history class with Professor Dan Utley, who is a, a famous uh, oral historian in Texas, and I decided to do a class project and it kind of evolved into a pet project, a side pet project. And uh, I was able to come up with a really fascinating idea of Waco has a tie directly to 9-11. And that tie is primarily with President Bush and his ranch at Crawford, just outside of town. It's probably 25 miles, 30 miles away from Waco. Mm-hmm. He liked to frequent that ranch to a lot of people's understanding that that may have been one of the targets that was coming next or could have been a target. And so I started doing some research on that and kind of seeing where it would take me and had spoken with my father, Detective Joe Williams, otherwise known as Joe Bob, to the PD community. Joe Bob. Joe Bob. That the SWAT team at the time was a full-time SWAT team, Special Weapons and Tactics, and they were on presidential duty, which is very rare, and or I think, don't think in ever, as it has ever happened in presidential history, the municipal SWAT team had a presidential duty to aid Secret Service and protection of President Bush from the airport. 
at the ranch and, and in the community. So I started talking to him, and it turns out that several of his partners and guys that he worked with on the team had some really interesting stories regarding the PD's involvement that day. And to me, that was a story that needed to be captured because the 9-11 is, kind of kicks off the 21st century and everything that's happened since is a byproduct of that mm. and it's going to define the century. And so I think the local element here needs to be captured and I was happy to, to be able to capture a small snippet of it thus far. So putting together your story, where does it all kind of start for you? Started for me... Um, the connection that, that the SWAT team has and, and the guys that I've known for a while that I was able to interview, I moved towards interviewing them, asking them through officers' lives that day, that morning, what happened before, you know, what was their routine before the towers were hit? Mm -hmm. And then I kind of let them tell me what they did, let, it, let them unfold it to me. It was a normal day, just like it was for everybody. Mm -hmm. And then you flip on the TV or the radio, you know, we didn't really have cell phones to that point that we do today. And so news travels rather differently. And when they flipped on the TV, they knew something drastically different was happening that day. And they knew, uh-oh, that they were going to be doing something that they no one's been done. For example, the SWAT team was doing um, their regular workouts in the gym. Mm -hmm. And uh, somebody flipped on the TV and they saw that a tower had been hit. At that point in time, they kind of just like everybody was, shocked, disbelief. They were waiting on to see what would happen. You know, what, what was the next step? What was going to happen? At that point in time, uh, Monroe Kralinski, I believe, was with a sergeant. And he told them all to stop their, their morning workouts and gear up. Mm -hmm. That this was going to be a different day for them. So they knew right then that it was probably going to be something going on that was going to have them jump into action. For sure. Usually they, they will serve high-risk warrants and provide assistance like that to the city and do major drug arrests and things like that. At this point, it morphed into something quite the opposite. They had to go into a more of a security stance. They had to start putting a bubble around Waco and protecting Waco. For example, one uh, detective, uh, Terry Mills, and his partner forgot his name. They were ordered to go get the mayor. At that point in time, it was uh, Robert Sheehy. He has since passed, so that that oral history is gone. Mm. I would have loved to have that one back, but um, he has since passed away, I believe. And uh, they went into his office, and he had no idea what was happening. They said, well, you have to come with us right now. No exceptions, no excuses. Those were their orders. We need to take you to the emergency management center. And once I heard that, I said, Waco has an emergency management center? <laughs> yes, they do. And at that point in time, it was located in the basement of City Hall. Okay. I'm not sure where it's at now, but who was on the emergency management center was the mayor, the city council, department heads, city administration staff, county people, uh, legal counsel, things like that. Once they got everybody in one area, they had to kind of protect the emergency management center and set up a, a security circle around that. But of course, at this time, no one knows what's going on. To quote Terry Mills, the rumor mill kicked in. Mm -hmm. You know, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know where the next attack was coming from. Is President Bush even coming to the ranch? Mm -hmm. They kind of, the Secret Service just kind of, as it all's unfolded over the you know past decades, now we kind of looked at it and said, oh, you know, no one really knew it was going to happen until it kind of just happened. They ordered him up into Air Force One. But at that time, no one knew. Yeah. So given a little context, just in case there's younger folks listening. So President Bush is at an elementary school in Florida, Sarasota, Florida. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah. And as Michael Moore infamously my pet goat, he's reading my pet goat to a class. He's notified, I think his first statements come there in Florida, but then they put him in the air. So yeah, they don't know where he's going. Nobody knows where he's going. And I think there's room locally to believe uh, in many respects that Crawford 
Waco, Crawford could be that destination that he's heading to. What the local community here and local PD knew here, that he was very comfortable with the ranch. And we now know that the nation knew that, that and the world knew that. He was very comfortable with his ranch, you know, also called the Western White House in Texas, a very similar LBJ type setting in Crawford. And they figured that the proximity, because he, he has to land in Waco and then be transferred by helicopter or by vehicle. And so they figured that that's where he would kind of come because it's just, it's less dense, yet much more airspace you can control. It's just easier. You're next to the, you know, one of the world's largest military bases in Fort Hood. Mm-hmm. So it offers protection there. It just made kind of more sense to do that, but they decided to keep him in the air that was more safer to do that. But at that time, everybody thought that he's most likely going to come to the ranch because it's a smaller style uh, building that you can protect much easier that way. And I I think he's going to an area with less air traffic. Absolutely. So it's easy to vet kind of what the air traffic is around the space. Absolutely. That's where they thought he was going. As the day slowly unfolds, the other tower gets hit, the Pentagon. One of the plane crashes in Pennsylvania. They don't really know if there are more attacks that are later on the day. Right. So they are still at a very high level of mentally preparedness. And so they kind of started to shift and to say, okay, maybe he's not coming here. Talking to the, the SWAT officers that, that were kind of in brief conversations with the Secret Service, they didn't really even know. Mm-hmm. And so as that goes on, they have the orders come in from up above the chief and assistant chiefs. They said, you know, we need to start securing the vital operations of Waco, the dam, the city hall, Waco airport, electrical grid stations. We're all seen as possible targets from from people that wanted to do harm or to start uh, to make things more difficult for for the president. So they started doing two-man security checks, and they would have to rotate and check these um, security areas, the high possible threat areas. And at that time, of course, there's panic, almost borderline public panic going on in the city. People are calling in on all sorts of suspicious vehicles, suspicious baggage in the parking lots at airports, suspicious people, but those calls were coming in. One such call was, I believe there was a, a rider truck, those transport trucks parked out in front of City Hall. The previous attack on the Twin Towers was done in mm-hmm. a rider truck. So that kind of made some people very uneasy. Mm-hmm. And fortunately enough, the rider truck was empty. This was SWAT team over there and they, they secured the truck and opened it and nothing was in there. Somebody picked the wrong day to move some desks. You are not lying, man. Can you <laughs> well, imagine? Also, with thinking about Oklahoma City, I mean, yes, yeah, Timothy McVeigh. There's precedent it. there, yeah. He yeah. used that, I believe. Yeah. They're very, uh, they're very well aware of what's happening, and they're trying to keep citizens calm. Patrols trying to do that as well. The SWAT team was not taking any warrants, not doing anything like that. They were just going to security checks and constantly answering special calls. You know, we've had a few instances where the private planes took off from the airport or their private airports out in their land. And then about three minutes later, or less than that, you have a fighter jet behind you. And then those people would have to get down and then they would send out someone to investigate why they were up in the air at all on, when they grounded the planes. As that's kind of unfolding, there, there are days going by and it's not like it's going to let up. You know, they're not going to be able to stop and take a break and, oh, let's just, you know, let's just take 30 minutes to go grab that. And that's not really, they had to constantly be on edge and be prepared for, for what was going to happen next. And, and at that point in time, of course, we all know, and as I remember, no one really knew what was going to happen next. Back then, it took a while to get the news out. Most of these officers, when they, it ended up being about a 12, I think, to 15 hour day for them, in and out all the time, checking on constant, constant things. Most of these officers live in the community and or surrounding area. And one such officer lives 15 minutes from Bush's ranch. And so he was worried about his family. 
you know, what was going to happen next? Most people thought that there's no way this is, this is the end. They're, they're going to keep coming the next day. When they went home, they had the same conversations as you, you did with your, with your family. You understand now that the world is definitely going to change. It's moving in a vastly different direction, that this is unprecedented. Flying is going to be vastly different now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the world's going to change. What is the response going to be? Is America going to have a response? And so these are the type of things and conversations they were having with their family. Most of them didn't get much sleep, you know, rightfully so. I imagine they were very high adrenaline and nervous just like everybody was. I still get a little bit nervous when I read uh, read the tapes and watch uh, watch shows about it. It still kind of still kind of um, gets you uneasy. So to be clear, there was no actual situations in Waco and Bush didn't ever actually come. Yeah. So I should have clarified. Yes, Bush never came. He did not come. I think it w- he came a couple weeks later. Mm-hmm. But there was no credible threat of any kind other than fake bomb threats. There were a handful of those. But other than that, there were no credible threats, no threats at all, which was a great thing, you know. Yeah, he goes, leaves Florida, goes to Barksdale uh, outside Shreveport. Barksdale Air Force Base is where he lands. Makes statements there, and then he's in the air again, and then goes to Nebraska, I think. I think something like that. Goes somewhere in the the Midwest, and then, of course, he goes to Ground Zero, which we all, uh, the famous speech, and made a lot of people nervous. I've watched a lot of documentaries on that, and that made a lot of people nervous that he was going to be there. But I think that was the, the right move. Do you know when local authorities got word that wasn't a possibility? Uh, he wasn't coming to Central Texas. I have yet to uncover exactly when that happened. Yeah. I believe as the Secret Service was going through the day, I don't think they were going to let anybody know anything. Yeah. And if they did, there may have been most likely disinformation yeah. for obvious reasons. As the day goes on, you could they could probably gather as much as, well, he's probably not going to come here mm-hmm. as the day goes on. But they also thought maybe he would come here the next day or yeah. late at night, just show up at the airport. That was perceived... As, a, as an option as well, that he might just show up and we'd have to just immediately go out there. Like I said, it was very much was the in, in the unknown. Makes those tensions and those... Yeah, and kept them on alert. I don't have any experience or I don't have any knowledge of his ranch there, but I do have a lot of experience on bases and I would see why that would be a safer choice if you needed to land because you can actually control all the entrances and exits and have a police force in place. And on a ranch, maybe kind of hard to control all the different areas by which people could come. Right. Yeah. And, you know, because there's a spot um, right across from the ranch called the 11th Acre was kind of a uh, rendezvous point where they would, Secret Service or the county or the SWAT, the Waco SWAT would meet. And that's where they would delegate protections and things like that. And after 9-11, the, the team, SWAT team would go out and to the ranch and then now you'd see a missile battery in the back or a Harrier, a Harrier jet sitting there uh, ready and waiting. And then they expanded the no-fly zone and it would constantly, I remember just hearing those jets just fly 24 hours a day whenever he was in town at the ranch. For example, one trip within uh, the Israeli president, I believe, came to visit him, and that's a high-value target towards the same people that that, that he's perceived as a high-value target just as much as President Bush is. Right. And they did, like, it was like a 36- or 72-hour shift, I guess, or tour, constantly in security mode out there at the ranch. So they used the ranch to their advantage uh, in a post-9-11 sense, and that's changed a lot of how protection's done. To my understanding, there's never been such a city police department involvement in the protection of a president than Waco PD has done in the history of America. 
Did you hear any interesting nuggets about how they protected him specifically that would be interesting to people? Like I remember Dick Cheney came to my ship when I was in Japan and they were Secret Service was out there two weeks before and they were doing all sorts of checks and then they were mentioning, you know, snipers on roofs and stuff like that. So I'm sure there's similar tactics involved. Oh, there. for sure. Yeah, there's there's definitely the Secret Service does a fantastic job at protecting the president. And I guess they should probably do better at dinner parties, I suppose. <laughs> but uh, when I was at the ranch, there's a, a base team that stays in Waco, a Secret Service office. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still here. Still, yeah. It's still in Waco believe it or not. And they would, they would spend like a couple of days in advance and would just constantly be on alert out there. And there's definitely snipers on rooftops. They would use Marine one and Marine two coming up and down. You don't know which one he's on. They would mm. send motorcades down the road that didn't have anybody in it. Things like that. Absolutely. They, they took the, all the necessary precautions and to, to ensure the president's safety in such a volatile time uh, and, and just after 9-11. And since 9-11, the Waco PD, PD has changed um, certain things of how they go about securing the city. They've implemented certain things. They've learned a lot from this scenario mm-hmm. if case uh, an, a big emergency happened, you know, of any kind. What are some things that that involved, this shift in readiness? I know there's just way more technology now, the mm-hmm. preparedness, there's better plans. And, you know, New York, Chicago, those cities deal with, in LA, yeah, they, they, deal with this. Yeah. they deal with massive threats, you know, all the time. And, you know, London, for example, is, has that. But the city of Waco, I think, learned a lot that day and it's been able to, to improve itself. I'm uh, sure it changes whenever you have some famous or important person in town too you have to think about are there dangers to that person right yeah absolutely absolutely for example the current events of like chip and joanna i'm sure that they're they have probably a little bit of a security team there's now. snipers on the silos for sure <laughs> there are you know that's, that's why they got the silos they have the cup or that the cupcakes there so you can't go in there it's because that's where they're basing exactly. yeah that's, that's right exactly. what randy was trying to get at earlier is is rumors and conjecture that that Joe Bob wouldn't want you to share that maybe stories about just interactions maybe with the protection team, with the Bush presence here and that sort of thing. That's what he's getting at. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. He's, he didn't, he Apparently didn't not as good as it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The SWAT team was obviously in close relationship with the Secret Service through these eight years. I mean, it's still, they still have a relationship to some degree with the Secret Service when Bush does come to the ranch, but he doesn't really come that much often anymore. But I know they would train together and there would be this go to a boy training type stuff and the type of shooting contests and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a few few interesting stories. They do elude me at the moment, but I knew no, there was a shooting contest. Let's put it this way. Oh, Joe Bob won that one. <laughs> of course, he's going to say well, that. He wants you to tell yeah. that story. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of the, those unique stories, and there's a uh, picture, I believe all the uh, officers got signed by Bush. There's a picture of them mm-hmm. um, standing with President Bush and... Uh, that they got, and that was that was very special to them. They did get to be in close proximity to the president and other foreign leaders, military and political leaders. So there's a lot of unique memories they have. I wish I could have transported myself back in mm. a couple of years after and gotten those memories when they when they were happening, as all oil historians probably would mm-hmm. <laughs> would wish that they could do that. You know, at the time, some of the stuff has been lost. It's unfortunate, but they the definitely the memories are definitely out there. So it's definitely an on, ongoing project. This is not done. Uh, the other day, I having dinner, and I ran into a Secret Service agent that was a part of that detail, and we chatted, and he was real ardent about wanting to get get to get an oral history and have me talk to him about that day and kind of capture that. So it was neat. It's kind of 
coming full circle. It's always staying with me. So it definitely will be an ongoing, consistent project for, for years to come. I think it's, I'd like to uh, get it fully captured and maybe write something about that. Maybe, maybe publish something about so that. So someone's listening, they can contact the show. and <laughs> They can. And, uh, they can contact yeah. the show. Yeah. Uh, well, you were sharing earlier before we started recording just some experiences you got to have, you know, going on Air Force One or, or seeing Air Force yeah. One. and. Mm-hmm. Can you share some of those? Yeah. So my dad calls me or does calls my mom and says, you know, it's tight doing today is football practice. Whatever. How old were you? I don't know. I was Teenager. probably 16, 17, yeah. somewhere around there, okay. um, late teenage years. And, and so he said, why don't you uh, get dressed properly and come out to the airport at TSTC and <laughs> tell me where to park? And I said, okay. What's well, proper dress yeah, for this? Yeah. yeah. You know, right? What is, do, I need a, <laughs> do I need a black suit and tie? What do I need to wear? So anyways, I get out there and he goes, I sent a secret service agent who's going to come talk to you. I can't remember the guy's name. I, remember, I know his face, but I can't remember his name. Comes out there. He says, uh, are you uh, Joe Bob's son? I said, yes. And Ty Williams, he says, okay. He goes, let me see your ID. So he gives me my ID. I give him my ID. He says, okay. And he goes, give me, uh, give me knives, weapons, guns, keys on you. He, that took a while. Yeah. Yeah. It took, so I had to, <laughs> I had to unload all that stuff. An hour later. Yeah. No, uh, but I was shockingly enough. He did take my keys. He did take my keys. Definitely. He didn't pat me down or anything, but he definitely took, made sure I had everything in my pockets. I got to get beyond the rope and beyond the media and go walk around Air Force One. I couldn't get on at that point in time. Mm. I think mm. there was a, something secret that they wouldn't let me know. But no, I I got to see uh, a lot of Air Force One from the ground very, very close up. That was exciting. That was really neat. I, I saw President Bush. I got to see a sitting president. Believe it or not, very few people actually get to see a sitting president. It's a very small portion of the population. Any sitting president, there was a poll done, I think, and it was less than 2% or something like that, or less than 1% actually get to see a sitting president. So that was nice. I got to see him at a you know 20 yard distance. Uh, I gave him a wave. I made sure nice. he knew who I was. Good he move. gave you a wink. He, yeah. he gave me, yeah, he gave me a finger wink. Guns. Yeah, finger guns, and <laughs> I gave him a fist bump, and we high fived. No, 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 but <laughs> that would have been fantastic. But no, no. But uh, I, I did get to see him at a decent distance. What do you think the? And this is for you know, so many people are new to Waco the last twenty years, and so they they may have less understanding of this. But what do you think the impact of you know that sort of proximity and having Camp David? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in many respects. Right outside of Waco, what do you think the impact, the broader impact that had on Waco itself? You know, I, I believe it uh, situates Waco in American history. For those eight years, Waco's in a, in a very interesting spot next to the Western White House. And I think also Crawford, Texas, mm-hmm. situates that in American history, in the history of America. It's What it stands for Waco is that is something that your town was able to protect itself and aid the the nation, if if it was going to be called to protect a president or to do what needed to be done, that your your officers were prepared, ready, and and standing ready to 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 do whatever was necessary if they if they needed it to be done. Talking to those guys, they were mentally ready to do what was necessary, laying down their life or doing something quite unusual. They were wanting to be a part of this. They were wanting to do something. A lot of people felt helpless that day. That's also what I've gathered. Everybody wanted to do something, but what can you do mm-hmm. at that point in time? I think it's a fantastic, very unique story. 9-11, I've been to the memorial during this project, and it kind of makes it the connection real. Mm-hmm. You know, with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, it also becomes a point of protest or a place of protest. And, Correct. And I, I don't know what role local law enforcement may have had in in that or if any of the guys you interviewed talked about that. I I do know in passing, uh, we didn't discuss too much about that, um, but over the years there, I've heard stories that, that people would obviously try to go protest or get lost in a back road, and boy, that's mm-hmm. a that's a wrong back road to get lost on. Yeah. For sure, there were people who would protest in the town of Crawford, 
closest to the ranch as they could get and at the airport, um, to my understanding, there mm-hmm. were protests. I didn't see any protesting when I was there, very much so. They were, they were definitely protests. What was W's favorite place to get a burger in Waco? Man, I don't know. But if I if I was a guessing man, if it was... <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah, no, I mean, don't yeah, just guess. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Your favorite burger place? Should I do a plug right now? Yeah, no, we are an unsponsored <laughs> enterprise. Yeah, he's uh, a Captain Billy Whizbang guy, I think, for sure. Oh. Was that around back then? I don't know. Oh, for sure it was. <laughs> we're looking for sponsorship. So <laughs> if you R. would like to be, we're going to have Ty recording <laughs> several different names of burger places. And Absolutely. if you'll send us money, he'll insert that here. I can do that. I can do that. As a someone who's not from Texas, what's the connection for W to Crawford? Is that like the family is from that part of town or no? And he goes there sometimes yeah, still, yes. but it's not a place where he's at very often anymore. No, not anymore. No. So Bush bought the ranch, and of course, the official name of it is the Prairie Chapel Ranch. He bought the ranch in '99, right after earning 14.3 million dollars from the sale of the Texas Rangers. So this is when he was governor of Texas. He bought the land. And so there's not a long family right. connection to the land. Mm-hmm. I remember sure. a lot of video of him clearing mesquite. Yeah. You know, and things Absolutely. like that. You would see, they would have and a video. The, the, yeah. with the, you know, it's very, you know, Jeffersonian and Andrew Jackson yeah. type yeah. of uh, imagery. Of, uh, That's right. Uh, uh, to, Manly man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the man of the people. Taking care uh, of the land. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a lot of those images from the ranch that are in uh, American history. I went to Bush's presidential library oh, in Dallas yeah. in Dallas, and uh, I got to nosy around that thing. And there's a lot in there. It's really neat. Mm-hmm. A lot about the ranch. A lot about, of course, 9-11. I suggest going to see it if you're ever in the Dallas area. It's really mm-hmm. interesting. We're missing the obvious sponsor for this episode, Bush's Chicken. That's where Absolutely. he went. Absolutely. <laughs> that was his favorite place to eat. <laughs> <laughs> Done. Lock that one down. <laughs> well, thanks very much for coming on the show. I've learned a, a ton. And uh, actually, I want to go check out the ranch now as close as I can get. Uh, I, I, I assume at one point in, in our lifetime, it will be a museum. So. I'm sure just close like LBJ is is now. Uh, I'm sure that will be one day be a museum. Hopefully we all get to go out there and check it out. Yeah. Thanks, Ty. You're most welcome. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco. Thanks for listening to the Waco History Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe, rate, and review our show on iTunes so we can reach more listeners. You can find show notes and info on every episode at wacohistorypodcast.com and more info on Waco's past at wacohistory.org. Our theme music, used with permission, is Cross the Brazos at Waco, performed by the late Billy Walker. For more info on Billy's music, go to billywalker.com. We'll see you next time. Time ago, as he dropped the guns that she hated in the muddy Brazos below. Cross the Brazos and Waco, ride hard and I'll make it by dawn. Cross the Brazos and Waco, I'll walk straight in old San Antonio. Then the night came alive with gunfire. He knew that at last it'd been found. As the ranger's badge showed brightly, El Bandito lay on the ground. Carmela knew he was dying, that all of her dreams were in vain. As she kissed his lips for the last time, she heard him whisper again. Cross the Brazos and Waco, 
Safe when I reach San Antonio. I'm safe when I reach San Antonio. 